0: We Will Not Be Tamed, a Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation podcast that encourages all Texans to get involved in conserving the wild things and wild places of our state.
1: I'm Lydia Saldana with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation and we're here at Spoke Hollow with Spoke Hollow Outfitter CEO Josh Crumpton and of course that CEO stands for Chief Executive Outdoorsman.
0: Thanks
1: (laughs) Thanks for hosting us today, Josh.
0: Oh, happy to do it. I'm happy to be out here with you um, at the caboose on the Blanco.
1: <laughs> We've been out here. Parks and Wildlife Foundation has been out here quite a bit. We, we know this real estate pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Josh, I'm interested in just kind of hearing your, your story. And um, I want to talk to you about Spokalo, but I kind of want to start before that. And just, I guess, tell me your story. Tell me how you got to be where you are now.
0: Yeah. It's a big question. It is a big question. So... Um, I grew up, I was predominantly raised by my mom as a a single parent for for a large portion of my life. Um, I never met my dad. Um, My mom was probably the only white person, definitely probably the only white woman living in the fifth ward of Houston. My grandfather was a judge um, in North Texas. My mom kind of did a rebellious thing, took off and went to get involved with um, civil rights movement in the 70s, and that's how my dad and her met. Um, She got pregnant, moved to San Antonio, Texas, had me there, um, raised me there until I was about eight or nine years old on her own. Um, I had a stepfather, but we never had a very close relationship. Um, Great guy, learned a lot from him, but we never had that like bond, that that father-son bond. Um, I came to the outdoors through the legend and lore of my grandfather. So my grandfather passed away when I was 15. Um, I remember seeing him on holiday occasions, um, all of them. And when we went to his house, he was a musician. He played piano, he played guitar, um, and he was an avid hunter. And we were always eating some sort of game or fish that he had you know procured himself and this is your mother's father this is my mother's okay. father that's correct yeah no no real connection to my father's family okay. um and you know i didn't really get that opportunity to get out there and do those things with him so um we grew up, i grew up between san antonio texas and telluride colorado and in telluride colorado when i was 12 years old um I went to, everything was done by charge account in Telluride. Right. So the grocery store had a charge account. The hardware store you had a charge account. And the sporting goods store, you had a charge account. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when I was 12, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. A friend of mine, John Gowdy, he and his father used to fly fish together. And I was 12, maybe 13, right in that window. I remember my friend John telling me about the fly fishing trips he would take with his dad. And, um, I, in my mind now as an adult can see the connection that I made, that I wanted that closeness to an adult male role model that my friend John had. And so I decided that fly fishing was the modality to get that. So I went down to the hard, to the sporting goods store and charged an Orvis fly rod (laughs) and (laughs) and then hit it (laughs) and, and, uh, (laughs) and tried to learn to fly fish on my own. And that kind of went okay. I got, I got a ways on it. I did not catch fish that way. And, and when the statement came in, my mom saw the statement. What's this fly rod? Called the shop. Oh, no, no. Josh came in and got one. Then she called me down. We had a talk. I did a bunch of chores. <laughs> a bunch. <laughs> a bunch of chores. Got in some trouble and did a bunch of chores. And then, um, but the good, good thing was I got to, after I finished chores, I got the fly rod back. And I got casting lessons. And so that's how my love of fly fishing began. And that was my entry point into the outdoors. I fly fished.
1: Mainly in Colorado. In Colorado.
0: Yes. Yeah. I lived about, um, fortunately about a block and a half from a river that I could go walk down to and, and fish as a young teenager. And then when I got my driver's license, uh, that was the first thing I did was start driving out to high mountain lakes and to other rivers, the San Juan and to the, to Gunnison. Um, you know, just trying to explore further and further away. Um, I rock climbed, I kayaked, I skied, I camped. I did sort of all of those modes of sport. I didn't hunt. And I grew up in a very, um, Telluride's a very crunchy, hippie sort of community. And, and hunting was not a thing that that my peers or their parents did. Um, guns were not very... Um, it was not a very kosher thing in Telluride. But your grandfather was a hunter. My gra- yeah, my grandfather was, but he didn't live in Telluride. He lived in Ridgeway. Okay. And um, he originally bought some real estate in Telluride. And my family grew up going back and forth from the panhandle of Texas, where he was a judge, to Telluride. And uh, he left Telluride kind of, sort of the 70s, 80s, and sold the last of his property in the 90s because there was too many hippies, in his opinion. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there My I was. My husband
1: and I were there last year. They're still there. <laughs> they, they are still
0: there. It's true. It's true. It's changed a little bit. It's not. They don't have the mayor. When I was younger, our mayor's name was Ross Stevie, and he had dreadlocks down to his uh, knees, practically. Um, but I didn't grow up hunting. My grandfather did. I was interested i was too young to kind of voice like hey i'm interested i want to go learn to do that and then you know he was sick and and gone you know so i went 12 13 fly rod starting to learn to fly fish by 14 he had cancer and then he passed away when i was 15. Mm. and so i just didn't get that opportunity and um i grew up with a whole lot of sort of prejudice towards hunting fishing did that loved it um, like, tell me, what
1: were those prejudices? What did you, what were you told? What did you, what did you pick up back then?
0: Yeah, you know, so I grew up um, back and forth between San Antonio, Texas and Telluride. When I was in San Antonio, Texas, and, and this has been something that later in life I've been able to analyze and really understand what was going on, but. Uh, and a, I'm from
1: San Antonio. Where did you go to school in San Antonio?
0: Uh, Elm Heights. Okay. Um, okay. So I grew up part of the year there, part of the year of Telluride, and when I would come in to Alma Heights it was usually like fall so dove season all those things were happening deer season and you know I'd watch these kids show up in camo and um, one I was jealous because it was Friday and I knew they were gonna leave like half the day they were they were going right after lunch or maybe not even staying till lunch and uh, you know so that was what was on my mind then as an older man now I can look back and say that I was also incredibly jealous that they were gonna go do something with. At that time, it was fairly stereotypical. Um, Luckily, we've been changing those stereotypes, but at that time, it was they were gonna go do something with their dad, and I didn't have that, and I became, I think, pretty jealous about that. And so it was very easy for me to take a jump from the jealousy of something that I didn't have to looking at all of these kids, and in Alam Heights, all these kids were white and they were male. And it was very easy for me to make that next step and say, well, this is not a sport for me. You know, this is a bubba, redneck, racist sort of white thing. White kid, right? Yeah, white kid sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so that that's the conclusion that I made. And that's how I wrote off, you know, the jealousy that I had and sort of displaced it so mm-hmm. that I didn't feel sad about it, I think. And, you know, it wasn't until much later in life, you know, and, I, and when I say much later in life, I'm 45 now. And, I want to say that I probably didn't come to terms with that until a couple of years ago, you know. But I started...
1: Something about raising kids yeah. has something to do with that, doesn't <laughs> something, it? Something, yeah. yeah, and
0: some serious mm-hmm. reflection. You know, I think a lot of that actually came from the uh, diversity, equity, inclusion work that I've been doing and really starting to dig in and open up, you know, like my perspective on things because everything I drive there comes only from my perspective. So mm-hmm. I really have had to dive deep into my understanding of race, race relations in the outdoors. So hunting from these barriers and walls that I put up, I got to it in my 30s. Um, I spent a lot of my career in the restaurant and wine business, um, disconnected here in Texas from public land without a ranch really here. Um, we I come from a ranching family, but we didn't own any ranches.
1: So you worked in, in restaurants and wine. Tell me, what you, tell me what your career path was.
0: Um, Well, my career path was going to college to be a computer science major and then um, realizing that I didn't really want to do anything with computers and getting an opportunity to own a part of a restaurant and leaving kind of around my early junior year from college to go and open a restaurant and own a part of a restaurant. Um, And that that was where? That was in San Antonio. Okay. That was a little restaurant called um, Trios. Okay. And yeah, Trios. And so that restaurant you know did what a lot of restaurants do didn't work (laughs) so my um now my
1: daughter is an executive chef at a restaurant in Fort Collins okay so I know I know we're talking 60 hour work weeks you know um it it's 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 not just a job (laughs) it's everything right yeah so during that time did you even have time to do outdoor stuff
0: no no and I mean I was I was 23 Three years old and no time to do outdoor stuff and through college I'd lost sort of the connection with outdoor stuff you know I would say like somewhere in my early 20s um, I lost the connection because ultimately at that time I was a trout fly fisherman I was a rock climber I was a kayaker uh, and I camped on public land none of those things were options to me in Texas and I didn't make that extra step to navigate how to interface into the outdoors in Texas you know, before the outdoors were, were two blocks. Right yeah, it was right. two blocks from yeah. my front door. And Plus, I was you're working your butt off. National Forest, and and there is that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there is that too. Yeah. So, um, I think you know where I went from there was restaurants were not uh, lucrative for me. At least they have been for for the fortunate few. Um, and after I closed my last restaurant, which was a tapas and wine bar, I was looking at who made money off of this deal and i was like well the restaurant equipment dealers made money the food vendors made money and the wine uh distributors made money and one of those three sounded attractive to me and it was it was the wine (laughs) so i got into the wine business i was a broker i sold to large distributors and then i started a distribution company and then um, i was able to be leveraged and purchased out of that that distribution company and that gave me some freedom to start thinking about what I want to do with my life next.
1: Freedom and capital, right?
0: Yeah. Um, And what I wanted to do with my life next was spend time with my kids. So I did that for about a decade. So tell
1: me about your family.
0: Yeah, so I've got um, all the kids. I've got my my current wife, uh, Jeannie. We co-parent a 19-year-old and a 15-year-old, Jaden and Jordan, um, with my ex. And then we have three children, Joshua, Johnny, and Josephine, that are 10, 8, and one year old, respectively. <laughs> so big family, which is awesome because I always wanted a big family. Um, and I think, you know, I spent about a decade just spending time with my kids, just hanging out with them, going outdoors. And, and, and in that decade, I kind of... So
1: you came back to the outdoors with your children?
0: I did yeah I did and I started like coming back in with fishing and you know, and coming back in with skiing and camping the things that I knew well my wife so still that Colorado connection still that Colorado yeah. connection yeah. most definitely and my wife her family um, had a had a property this property the one that we're we're sitting on her grandfather bought this property in the 40s and um, he bought it as a retirement property And he did just that. And
1: briefly describe where we are?
0: Yeah, so we're in Wimberley, Texas, which is um, 45 minutes from Austin, an hour from San Antonio, um, at the very beginning of the Edwards Plateau in the Texas Hill Country on the southeastern edge of it. Um, This ranch, Spokala Ranch, has been a place where people for thousands of years have gathered to live um, and raise their families here. Um, Before the Europeans, it was the indigenous peoples. Uh, Before the Native American tribes, it was the primitive peoples that were here. So this area goes way back, and I feel honored to be a part of this area. Um, My wife's family, her grandfather came here, as I said, to retire um wound up running running some cattle ran a little bit of sheep realized he couldn't farm this place so he looked at it and said i can't farm this place did buy it thinking he was going to farm it but way too much rock way too many hills and And i know this is a tacky
1: question but i'm going to ask it um so what are we talking about in terms of acreage here
0: oh so we are we're we're a a thousand acres which Uh,
1: is a lot in central texas
0: Yeah, it's a a good amount, especially for this part of Texas where it's broken up into five and ten acre homes all around us.
1: And was that something that was on the horizon that that might have happened here?
0: Um, No, I don't. I don't really think that that was on the near term horizon, uh, possibly the long term. You know, um, what happened with this ranch is after my wife's grandfather passed away um, and her grandmother, her grandmother lived here, she passed away. As I said, this was retirement. Mm -hmm. So my mother-in-law really didn't grow up here from as, as a kid raised on this property. So our kids are actually the first generation to really grow up living here. Josie actually is, is the first to grow up since, since birth, you know, on this piece of property. Um, and you know, it's interesting because one of the things that happens that's typical is, um, after her grandparents passed away, this property had a cattle lease on it and it had a hunting lease on it and it was on autopilot. No one from the family, none of the owners were active participants in running this property. My wife and I started coming out here and this is where I started making that, that connection back to nature and I loved this place and we just sort of slowly started little projects here and there and then we started to research sustainable farming and I was like, let's start a sustainable farm on the ranch. And um, you know, a set of circumstances led to us taking over the ranch. Um, And during those circumstances, the cattle lease kind of peeled away, the hunting lease kind of peeled away. And we were like, well, let's do sustainable farming. And I'd been studying it for a while. And I was like, okay, I'm super excited about that.
1: Does your wife have siblings?
0: Uh, she does. Okay. Three, so three there seven. must have been
1: a con- conversation se- There was a huge that. conversation.
0: Yeah, a huge family conversation about the transition and us taking over stewardship. And that took quite a while. You know, I mean, that was probably about a three-year conversation, actually, before we really drilled down on what we were doing. And during that time, I was looking at sustainable farming. And I planted a garden. And I realized I'm a terrible gardener. <laughs> so <laughs> so I'd, I'd put all this time and energy into providing food for myself and then I was like well I'm not going to do it this way so I was like maybe I should learn to hunt and maybe I'll be a little bit more successful at providing food that way
1: (laughs) so that's when you took up hunting that is okay so that that was was my early 30s so that was a self-directed thing that wasn't anybody that had an influence on you
0: no no it was just a self-directed thing I was like I want to I want I want to provide food um and and I want to get and I wanted to have a deeper connection with nature and the land, whether that be by farming it or whether that be through hunting at that point in time. And, and I understood at that point because of the research that I had done, I understood how farming and hunting can play a role in conservation if done properly. And um, farming was out, so hunting was in. And I took a class at a place, I think it was called Green Gate Farms. And Jesse from Dewey was going to come and teach butchering. Jesse Griffiths. Yeah.
1: Another We Will Not Be Tamed ambassador. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. (laughs) And unfortunately, he didn't make it out that day. But some other volunteers did make it out. Um, We slaughtered a heritage hog that morning, each participant. And we learned to butcher it. Because I I figured...
1: Had you ever done that before? No, I'd never done that before. And
0: I figured, like, picking up a gun... And going out and shooting a deer that's probably pretty easy like you know he'd make sure it's sighted pointed at it pie plate area where the vitals are shoot the deer now what <laughs> and that was the part where i was like okay then what so i said i probably need to learn to, to butcher an animal and butchering a hog so went... you're
1: pretty methodical about this
0: yeah it was definitely thought about all the different... yeah <laughs> i definitely thought it through if i was gonna if i was gonna take the life of an animal I definitely wanted to do it in the most ethical responsible way and make sure that the meat was utilized and feel comfortable doing it. So, I remember very clearly some key moments shifting in the day that I took the butchering class.
1: And what year was this?
0: Oh my gosh, I can't. I'm going to say this is about a decade ago. So not that long ago. No, it's about 10 years okay. ago. Yeah. So, um, maybe even nine can't remember okay. um what 2011 so this is about maybe a decade ago okay and I went out and shot this pig and then took it in and I was like this is gross you know and took it in into... was that
1: the first time you had shot an animal
0: yeah that's the first time okay. I shot an animal I was super hesitant to do it and this was a farm scenario so this was a you know a, a captivated animal not a not a wild animal and so um you know there was cert- a certain level of closeness that all this happened that I was very uncomfortable with at the time and then it was bringing it in to gut it and I just remember thinking this is disgusting you know I mean <laughs> a, lot of parts. A, a lot of parts <laughs> a lot, lot of, of like you know yeah there's a lot of like avoid the spots where you can get feces everywhere as a smelly you know I mean I was I was I was literally actually very grossed out by the whole thing. <laughs> and so I remember that once the guts were out, I remember, and I could tell you on my skin, a feeling of the crispness because it was a cold morning. And I just remember this moment that it's, it's just a feeling. And the, the pig stopped being a pig and it started to be food in my mind. And that's where everything shifted. And I just, I remember it so vividly. The feeling, the the skin, the temperature of the air on my skin. The way it felt when I breathed in, in my lungs. uh, The slight smell of iron um, in the air. And just, I remember that so clearly. And then I was just producing food. Which, which I did. You got
1: that, right? I did. (laughs) I did. I, I got it.
0: So, which was great. And so, um and the interesting thing about that is that i went into the grocery store maybe like two weeks later and i had this moment where all i was all those like,
1: pristine packages yeah
0: <laughs> all those packages that are totally like set up to remove the idea that it's an animal that it's an animal you know whether it's like on the on a package of chicken it's like maybe a farmhouse and some like fields and you know but we've taken all the bones out this the connection to the thing to the idea that something died to give us life is totally been removed from the equation. And I had a new appreciation and kind of thought to myself, well this is the abnormal thing. This is more abnormal than actually killing something and eating it. And I use that word killing rather than what seems to be popular harvest or take or yeah, all take the or harvest. Yeah. And and I understand that in certain circles we need to speak that way in order to be softer, but the reality is
1: This is our conversation, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna talk like you talk so yeah
0: and I think well and I think the reality is I also inform people often that I it's important to understand that something died you can harvest the meat after you kill the animal but you have to kill it first then you can harvest the meat and it's in it's in acknowledging that something died that I think the honor and the respect for the animal comes and what I tumbled to was that the package store food was abnormal, but also necessary. And a long route took me to wanting to bring other people to that realization. I don't believe, I'm not under the false conception that everybody can hunt for all their food. That's not practical. We're, we have to have the factory, farm, agribusiness. But I believe that the more people who hunt at least once and gain an Make appreciation, yeah. the higher level of standard we will hold agri-farm business to, and the more sustainable it will be, the, the easier and better on the land and the animals that are, that are raised on it, and which will ultimately lead to a better food product. So that's that's what we do at Spokalo now. And somewhere in between that, I went out by myself and shot a deer. <laughs> so.
1: <laughs> so, okay, and that experience, now we'll get back to Spokalo, but that experience yeah. of killing the pig that you mentioned in that situation where you then butchered it had to be different than when you killed a deer. Tell, tell us about very. your first experience.
0: Oh, so my first experience with a deer, um, you know, I did it very standard Texas style, feeder and a blind at a hundred yards, which I, you know, some people are like, that's just not the way to hunt, especially my friends out West for me. I have to drive them back around to the idea that there's 3.2 million deer to 4.6 million people in the hill country. We have an overpopulation of deer. If we did not bait them, we probably wouldn't get them out of the cedar thickets, and we would not be able to actually shoot enough deer to keep the population in control. So I did it that way, in a box blind, with a feeder, in a controlled scenario, so that my shot was accurate and the, the doe died immediately. She had a yearling with her. Um, I went down to the deer. I remember getting, I remember, again, smell, feel. It was cold. It was December. Um, and and I cried. You know, I cried. Uh, looking in the eye of that deer, it just brought an overwhelming feeling of acknowledgement of what I had done, which is take a life. And it it, it filled me with a little bit of Remorse at first, which I think is normal. If you don't have that, then I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't be hunting There's a little bit of remorse, but then there was a little bit of acceptance And as I then hoisted the deer up Got it into a ranger brought it back to where I was going to process the deer and when I was processing that deer um, That remorse and sadness had kind of faded away and it had changed to acceptance and it had changed to a feeling of place in the order of nature. Um, feeling of fulfilling m- my place as a eyes forward predator in nature. And it, it, was, it was an impactful feeling. Yeah. And you know, my family got to eat that meat and that was every meal was very special. And I don't deer hunt a lot actually. I bird hunt a lot more. Yeah. But, I, but I mentor people and I teach people with deer. And, I, and when I deer hunt, I deer hunt for meat. I'm not a trophy hunter. I don't, I'm not seeking big bucks. If a buck needs to go off the property, I'll, I will take it off the property because that's what the property needs. But for me, I hunt for food.
1: So where did that hunt take place?
0: Before that was here. That okay. was on Spoke That was here. Yeah, I was okay. by myself on the ranch, alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I think to connect to what we do now, I I really take pride and pleasure in being able to usher people in not alone and being able to open a gate because the thing is is here I was with a thousand acres and no skills and no way to do it but luckily I had the land to figure it out on so what about the people who don't have the access to the land? I mean I had a hard enough time shooting a deer while having access so the skill Skill, acquiring skills is, is a barrier as much as access. So I figure when you throw both of those things in front of someone, that's maybe the hurdles too high then. So I'm trying to um, allow people to access and the path to gain the skills.
1: And that's the perfect segue. But you know before, I, before we change gears a little bit, I, it's interesting to hear you articulate about what that first experience was like. Um, I have shot a white-tailed deer one time, exactly one. Mm-hmm. 1992 I was in communications at Parks and Wildlife and I had never been hunting before and I asked a wildlife biologist says I really need to understand this will you take me hunting and he did mm-hmm. and I had that exact same feeling I and you can see tears the way that you you talked about that I was reflecting on that experience for me and what that what that what that felt like because it, uh-huh. it is and that's exactly what the biologist said Roy Welch who's um, passed on rest his soul but that's exactly what he said he said if you don't feel like that you shouldn't be hunting. Uh-huh. it was very a very profound experience uh-huh. so, so that experience it sounds like it germinated the idea of what you're doing here and let's talk about about that how, yeah. how did that experience lead to what you're doing now spoke hollow outfitters
0: you know it's interesting because that experience impacted and informed what we're doing but wasn't the catalyst okay so it's interesting because um the catalyst for getting where we are here you know it's funny you just get to places on on accident and you look back and you go oh well that makes sense that's how that all happened but maybe it's not an accident (laughs) but unintentionally so this ranch As my wife and i started to take over stewardship we started to look at ways to monetize the ranch to help to pay for some of the conservation and improvements that we wanted to do on the ranch and also because
1: taking care of land is expensive yeah
0: it's very expensive Um, especially clearing cedar can be you know debilitatingly expensive and and oftentimes is is why people sell their land is because they can't take care of it um properly so then it's like well let's just sell it you know because it's going to be millions of dollars of input to bring it to where it needs to be and then it becomes a subdivision you know in in many cases sometimes not but in many cases and in the case of in many this place is in this place specifically it would be a subdivision um so i think we started to look at like how do we in the short term uh generate a revenue stream so that the other stakeholders don't have to write checks for the conservation of the property and how do we in the long term create a cash muse or vehicle that can sustain the property and so those were two two goals and a third goal for me was how do we start to put something in place that can encourage the future generations to come out and enjoy the property and none of the um, stakeholders hunt some of them fish but none of them hunt and none of their kids hunt and so the idea of an outfitter was appealing. We don't have cattle land here. We have multimillion-dollar house lot land here, you know, is probably the highest economic usage. Um, so beyond that was, well, let's open this up to hunting, and let's see if we can create a monetized outfitter out of hunting. And so that was, that was the original plan. And along the way, I started infusing some of the things that i desired which were to make it inviting to people who would never done it before to make sure that we had programs for that i wasn't interested in a large trophy buck ranch ever or bringing in genetics my hat's off to those that are doing that i don't know actually current state of affairs maybe my hat's not off to that right now but um so, so we'll leave that one alone. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Let's not. It's, it's a very sore subject yes, right now. Yeah. But um, so but the idea was never to put exotics on the property. Right. The idea was always to lean into um, natives, with the understanding. And I will I will preface in case it ever comes up, with the understanding that I fall into the new green gardener camp, which means that if a exotic animal can reproduce something that was here already. I might consider bringing it in. Pronghorn antelope are a prime example. This used to be part of their range. I can't put pronghorn antelope not enough, here. Not
1: enough room. Yeah.
0: But I could put blackbuck. So I could put an antelope species that may graze in the same way as the pronghorn. And so I am for that. Mm-hmm. But I'm not for the idea of putting black blackbuck on just because they sell for a certain price right. for people right. to hunt them. Um, if they hunt them throughout the course of them being here for conservation, then so be it. Um, So we started to look at, we don't want to be a trophy place. We do want to monetize. We're next to Austin. There's a lot of people coming in from outside of Texas that have never hunted. Let's target that demographic and bring them in. Um, We had a plan to make that mostly pay. And then I met Matt Hughes and I met Stewards of the Wild. And I started to work with their mentorship program.
1: And of course that's the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation's Young Professionals program. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's an amazing program. What a cool space. And I started to see the impact of these these programs that are not that do not cost people. And they remove that barrier of entry so that price is not a decision for someone to get in. And so those have been come front and center. And as we move into this next year, you will see a different blend probably more a 50-50 blend of us targeting monetized but also targeting opportunities that come for free (laughs) supported by working with the stewards of the wild the twa so
1: what have you achieved or what have you seen what have the results been of this operation out here what what are some of the things you can tell us about what you've observed what you've seen
0: well it's been a challenge covid proved a, a pretty big challenge um we we'd only been open to the public we'd been test piloting programs for a couple of years before but we'd only been open to the public for about 90 days before COVID happened oh i didn't realize that yeah okay. so um we had been running programs with um a referral network of people it wasn't sort of open to the public it was let's just you know it was all pay for but it was just like you had to know somebody if you were going to come hunt during the, that couple years and 90 days after we officially opened the doors, we were cranking along lots of fishing trips, lots of those things in COVID happened. And we took a pretty safe route and kind of shut everything down. Um, but as it started to ramp back up, we led forward with mentored experiences. We weren't quite ready to open up the pay for experiences. So we were doing mentored experiences. And what I have observed is that there's a high demand for people to learn Um, there's a high demand for not just outfitting but education Um, and what I've observed is that I'm not interested in just being an outfitter and a guide I'm interested in being a mentor an educator um, someone who opens the doors opens the gates for people to come and step into this industry and helps them come in and become true conservationists and understand the large picture because what I found is we have people we did have some leases that were on here just like to help us with managing deer some of these guys have been hunting their whole life their dads have been hunting their whole life and what i found was really interesting is even them i would take them out and with my restaurant background and with my background as a master naturalist and having a high emphasis on grasses i'm teaching these guys things you know they're 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 butchering their deer and they're going to take it to the process so i'm like are you going to take the the neck roast and come down to the deer camp where they stay. And I'm like, are you going to take the neck roast out? And they're like, well, I've never done that before. And so I'm like, well, let me show you. And so we take the neck roast out. And then I had some neck roast at the house. And I bring it down and I give it to them. And they're like, oh, my gosh, that's delicious. Or are you going to eat the heart? They don't eat the hearts. And so Try this. (laughs) Yeah. So I find that even, you know, and then when, when I'm taking them out to the blind, I'm looking at things like, oh, you know, well, that's big blue stem. That's little blue stem. We're talking about grasses. And these are things that those guys, you know, even though they've been doing it their whole life from South Texas, and they, they didn't. Much they didn't. less
1: somebody from Austin maybe who has never had that experience at all as maybe coming in here from, God forbid, California. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. oh, We love California. Yes, of course we do. Um, why is that important to you to share that?
0: Well, I think it's, it's, it's critical as, as a landowner, as a steward um, here in Texas, where we are 90, 95 to 97 in here fluctuating um, numbers private. Uh, it's, I feel that we have a responsibility to, to open the gates. We have a responsibility to, to connect people to land. Because if they don't have a connection to it, how are they going to care about it? How are they going to conserve it? And I feel like it's important to make it an education forward initiative because really, the biggest goal is not to just make money off of taking someone fishing or make money off taking someone hunting. The big payout is when I convert money into realizing why um, conserving space is so important for water, air, all of these things, and how hunting is an important part of that. Then those people can go on to advocate for legislative dollars, or when they see something, they can explain to someone and. That's that's how we're going to keep this planet, you know, a nice place to live for my five children and everybody else's children and their children's children.
1: Children's children. Yep. That's right. You said something earlier in the conversation that I want to ex- explore just a little bit. And that's <clears throat> what we've all heard that some say is buzzwords, diversity, equity inclusion, behavior, yeah. equity. Another big question. Okay. What does this mean to you and what are some of the discoveries that you've made in that arena
0: yeah i'm that's an area that i'm really excited about and it's another place that's important for for i like to say it's not important for the ranch it's important for me so i like to say that the deer they don't care about that the ranch doesn't care about that those things are important to me and and ultimately the more people who are on board with being in the outdoors the ranch will benefit from that other wild spaces will benefit from that. Um, I take a little bit different ro- road to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, I, and I'm, I'm excited to kind of share that because it's not the mainstream road. Um, I'm on the National Board of Trustees for Trout Unlimited. And as I joined that board, one of um, my biggest initiatives is to is to shift that organization to being more diverse. And not just when I say diverse, not just from a um, gender or racial or ethnic standpoint, but from an age standpoint. Mm. And I sort of extend the conversation of diversity, equity, inclusion to also include socioeconomic and sociopolitical, um, because I think that one of the major things is diversity of thought. And it's something that people don't often think about. And diversity of thought will also, if you focus on diversity of thought, you'll get diversity of all the other stuff. And I think it's something that we can all agree on, that we need to welcome more diversity of thought, Um, not just in the outdoors, political arenas everywhere. Diversity of thought is super important. And so when I put a diversity program on, I'm typically not saying, oh, let's, let's, let's build a program that has six black individuals in it. If I have six individuals, I want there to be everybody, all socioeconomic stratosphere, all, all everything. I I believe in building diversity programs that actually look like diversity rather than diversity programs that are trying to steer into an outcome. Why do that when you can just start with the outcome with the program and have everybody there? And it's in that interaction that true diversity happens, not in these siloed areas. So um, I'm excited to be doing that with Trout Unlimited. I'm excited to have participated um, in programs that, that support diversity through the stewards of the wild. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to extend that work into other places.
1: So of course, one of the reasons we're talking to you today is that Parks and Wildlife Foundation asked you to be a We Will Not Be Tamed ambassador.
0: Yeah, super honored to, to do that. <laughs>
1: so why why did you say yes to that? What does it mean to you?
0: Um, you know, the Parks and Wildlife Foundation's mission is central to everything that I'm about here. Um, and not just here, but but the mission of protecting the wild spaces and wild places is, it's not part of me. It's not just Spoke That's That's one of my major missions. So um, after working with, the stewards of the wild and the foundation for a year, and really sort of understanding the impact. Um, I was very happy to be able to lend my efforts to further that impact um, and hopefully leave a lasting mark. Well, we appreciate you, Josh,
1: and we appreciate you participating with us. And again, we thank you for your time today.
0: Thank you. This was great. Brought to you by Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation, We Will Not Be Tamed calls us all to appreciate the wildness of Texas, the vastness of our Texas spirit, and why we should be inspired to conserve it. Find out more at wewillnotbetamed.org.